Hello, I'm Rose Pierre-Louis, Chief Operating Officer of the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University. Welcome to a new episode of Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative. Today in studio for the Changing the Narrative podcast, we have special guests, Carlton Mackey, creator of Black Men Smile and a scholar at Emory University. I'm really excited to talk to you about a whole bunch of things. But first off, I want to hear about this incredible organization that you started, Black Men Smile. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me and for giving me an opportunity to talk about you know, my perspective in the work that, that I'm doing with particular emphasis on Black Men Smile. Um, Black Men Smile was started four years ago, um, and it was it was created out of a need to feel uh, as if I was contributing in a meaningful way, in a way that was um, relevant, but that was unique to my particular need at the time to um, add voice and add value and make an effect change in, in, in an area of how um, black men were perceived and um, the experiences and the trauma that I was feeling at the particular time that it was created. Black Men's Mind was created one month after Mike Brown was murdered in Ferguson. And I just remember at the time, I became startlingly aware of how I was perceived in the world and how it was impacting the way that I was seeing myself. And... Um, I wanted to interject into the to the narrative. I wanted to interject stories and voices and images particularly that would be something other than what had become, in my opinion, the most common image on social media of black men. And it was um, rest in peace photos or 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 images that we were posting that was honoring or um, the members of our community that had been slain. And it made me ask the question, outside of these images, what are the, what, what is the canon of images that represent um, who black men are and who's contributing those images and what do they have to say about us? So kind of a tongue-in-cheek experiment, I went on Instagram and I put in hashtag black men. And it brought back millions of images. And then I just did variations of that hashtag, um, putting in different things after black men. And I put in the hashtag black men smile. Um, It was 2014 and it yielded zero results. And um, I remember feeling the weight of that reality. And... I began to think about um, the question, particularly at this time of sorrow, what made me smile? What, what were the things that, that I found valuable and precious? And what were the things that gave me joy? And, and the startling thing that I discovered was that I hadn't really given a true assessment of, I, haven't, I, haven't, I hadn't really done a true inventory of what, the answer to that question. And I began to ask brothers around me kind of as a, not heavy research, but I I pulled about 20 brothers and I asked them that question. And overwhelmingly the response that I got was a pause 
And the first thing that came out of brothers' mouths was, um, no one's ever asked me that. And Black Men's Mile was born. I posted an image on Instagram using that hashtag. So there would it would bear witness to this reality that this is a part of who we are. And I began to ask, build a platform around asking brothers to um, answer the question for themselves, what makes what makes you smile? And in doing so, I realized that the act of thinking of the answer, the act of being courageous enough to accept that you are worthy of your joy and that you had the agency to affect change in the area of bringing about a reality where you can do it was revolutionary in and of itself. So Black Men's Smile started as a place to bear witness to a reality, to celebrate the way we saw ourselves and let that be a truth and to be our truth upon which we can build other than letting our truth simply be um, the reality of how other people see us. And it has grown from a foundation of daring to ask a question of what makes you smile so that we can create realities, possibilities, spaces where we can do it more often. I love that. I follow you on Instagram and I think it's so important that you're present and that those images are there to see. And I think it's a brilliant idea. And I really think of it as a movement, Mm -hmm. as an opportunity to have this dialogue. Because as I've said throughout this podcast, is that generally the perception is so one-dimensional. It is... um, so um, stereotypical and full of myths. And an organization like yours, Black Men Smile, to me is something that provides context, texture, understanding, but more importantly, our own voices Mm -hmm. and our own faces. Absolutely. So thank you for creating this organization. I want to talk to you a little bit about masculinity because mm-hmm. uh, it's so important to what's being talked about in Black Boys film. And you and I have seen some mm-hmm. sneak peeks of the film. And what I really love about it is similar to why I like Black Men Smile, because it dares to look at issues of black boys in a way that also demonstrates their joy Mm -hmm. as well as their fears and their challenges. And it will provide a platform for some, what I hope some really important conversations um, that I hope that you will be involved with as well. So tell me in terms of your own background, I know you're a super successful and popular (laughs) professor here at Emory in Atlanta, but talk to me about who taught you about masculinity and what did that look like for you growing up? Um, I I am very fortunate to um, be close to my father. Um, he, He taught me a lot about what it meant to be a human being, even before we were using language like what it meant to be a man or what masculinity was. And one of the things, one of the stories that I uh, 
that I tell um, whenever I, and I need to actually tell him the the the, the significance of, of of this. My my um my father is a Christian minister, um, and you know I, t- I it take forever to tell like how you know how our relationship grew from what it was to what it is, but but essentially he raised me going to church and um but his and church meant church in the typical sense of a building that you go in and there is a pastor um but that isn't what he spent his time doing and cultivating his identity as a as a christian and as a man he um he rented this house on his own in this community that um you know it was a lot of there's a lot of pimping happening on the streets. There was a lot of drugs being sold and exchanged. And he rented this house and um and he'd go every day, unlock the doors, and make sandwiches and pass them out on the street. And it was it was a Christian mission, but he it, it wasn't a church. And it what he would do essentially before I even knew about, you know, intentional communities, it was just a dude who was like, oh, that's a house I can rent for cheap. I can be in this community and I can give out sandwiches and I can give people hugs. And he used to drag me there. And I used to always be like, yo, why am I in this place? And I remember hugging people because he'd be like, give them a hug or this, you know. And I remember hugging people and smelling them. I remember this as a kid. And, and I remember telling them, Telling him that, like, man, why you make me hug these people, and why why do you hug these people? Um, and he was like, because they too are in the image of God, and God loves them, and that's what I'm called to do. And I never really broke down or thought about the impact that that had on me, or or from where this desire for this person to voluntarily do these things came from. But essentially, what he was showing me. Was he was de he was narrowing the distance between himself and the other, and these are concepts that I grew to understand later about what the the the, the true revolutionary nature of narrowing the distance between ourselves and our identities and people that we otherize for all kinds of reasons. Um, but he was teaching me about what it meant to be a man. He was teaching me about masculinity. He was teaching me about what it meant to give, to be open, to um, be charitable without using any of those words. He was just showing up, holding space and loving folk for who they are in part because he knew and understood, which is a part of his story, that he used to be out there in the same position as these people were. And ultimately, he longed for someone to do for him what he was doing. And um, we never use words like toxic masculinity or he's shown. It was just what he did. And it's now that I'm using my, my, you know, I'm using my understanding of what, of your question and I'm applying it to things that I show that I was, that were modeled to me uh, at a very young age. First off, your your father sounds incredible, and I hope you play this podcast episode for him just to hear him, uh, hear you in uh, your own words talk about what an extraordinary man that mm. he is. It's an incredible uh, just way to speak about a father and, and what he has passed along to you and 
how you've brought that forward in your life. Um, given the examples that you just refer to with your dad, has your perception of masculinity changed all over time? I know we talked a little bit about your son. Can mm-hmm. you talk about what that relationship is, understanding what you had with your father? Yeah, I think that um, though society is, I'm, I understand this as a parent and I understand it as a man who grew through adolescence into young adulthood and into adulthood. I understand as a parent that no matter what I do and no matter what my dad did to show me an example, culture is also working as aggressively to show me something else. Um, No matter what he did and he did do to build me up, culture and society and media and all the things that shape our identities are working to, to, to do something else. So, one of the things that I want to say though is that him providing me the ability, him him giving me the ability to see that being a man could represent a broader spectrum than the kind of narrow ways in which masculinity is performed by all these other sources that shape my identity was helpful so that I could have something to fall back on. I I can't say that my primary identity or the way in which I was actively working to perform masculinity, I was holding on to my dad as an example. What I was modeling were the things that I was seeing that I that I feel like I wanted. I wanted to be some of these other confines that I saw because they were alluring, they were attractive, they seemed like they it, it, it was what I saw on TV. It was it was it was what I wanted to do. And, and and you know when you're a teenager, you one of the things you do is you want to rebel against the examples that that you were given. So I'm saying all that to say, it may not take hold or root immediately the work that we're doing, particularly with young people. But I think I'm an example of whether we know it or not, we're planting seeds. We're broadening the spectrum of human behavior by modeling that something other than these other stimuli that are being fed into us can be possible. And when we need to call upon those things, whether we are actively doing it or whether we're whether it's happening in our in our subconscious, um, I think that seeing a spectrum of ways of being helps us call upon those things on the inside of us when when we need them. That's why I, I think it's important just to just to see, just to see examples of men doing a broad showing showing a capacity and showing a spectrum of human emotions um and modeling that who you can be can be this amassed identity that you have by seeing so much more than 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 the narrow ways in which um that are shoved down our throats. I think that's so true. Uh, Yesterday at the panel discussion sponsored by Black Boys Film, I thought it was fantastic when Malcolm Jenkins, who is, you know, this incredible football player, talked about his own evolution of his male persona and coupling that with being a star athlete and how he has been able, through his own self-discovery, and therapy, he talks about mm-hmm. 
how he now is using that as an opportunity to talk to other men to say, it's not just what you see on TV, that there are dimensions to who we are as men. And I find it so exciting to see so many people coming forward to create spaces for dialogue, to be courageous and having conversations around masculinity. You know that the American Psychological Association just came out. Essentially, what I think they're talking about is, you know, toxic masculinity and saying that uh, they came out with guidelines saying that traditional masculinity ideology is having a negative effect on men and boys. It's like, yeah, we know that. Um, But talk to me a little bit about belonging. It sounds um, with Black Men Smile that you are creating a space virtually Mm -hmm. and in reality um, for men to have a sense of belonging, Mm -hmm. um, of connection, of a resource, mm-hmm. uh, people that can be role models, because many times I hear from young black men, it's like, I haven't had many role models. And a role model could be a man or a woman, but oftentimes, you know, it's important for young males, I should say, to have male role models. So talk to me a little bit about the places where you feel most at home with other black men. And that's a, uh... That's a great question. I um I feel I feel most at home. I feel more at home with other black men in almost any environment uh as I have grown to feel more at home within myself. And I say that to say that, um, you know, you were talking about therapy and the role of therapy for um, for Malcolm. And I, I, we create, I think one of the functions of toxic masculinity or, you know, is that we create these spaces where um, the sense of belong is, 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 is based on all these divides. And sometimes we internal, internalize those and we feel as if we have to stack up. We're always seeing where we stack up against the next person. Um, And it's built on these essentially insecurities. As I have grown to accept and love myself for who I am and for what I bring to the table, it has made me be more and more comfortable in any environment among whoever, um, because I've grown to love and accept and appreciate myself. I've done, and what we push and what we teach in our workshops is to do an assessment of your strengths, of the things that you value about yourself, and to be able to see those things that you value in other people, to not seem like a threat against your own identity. And just as I've done this work, as I've been in therapy, as I've done more internal excavating, I can just say that I feel comfortable really in any environment because I'm not, I'm doing less of the work that it requires. And it's exhausting work to be in any environment where you're looking around and you're trying to see 
do I fit? Do I stack up against? Are my muscles the same size as? Am I as smart as? Um, am I too dark for this room full of light skinned brothers whenever light skin was a thing? Now, you know, dark skin is a thing. So now it's the light skin brothers <laughs> I'm trying. But, you know, all of that is what's happening. And brothers don't want to admit that we're actually doing it. We're looking at brothers and we're like, yo, if he bucked, could I knock his ass out? <laughs> um, it, we're doing that. Yes. And these silent internal conversations make us feel uncomfortable around each other because we haven't, we're insecure within ourselves and our own being. As we become radically in love with ourselves, we can spend less time having co- internal conversations about how we are not our brother or how we don't stack up against um, our brother and, and how ultimately there's, we can spend less time thinking about the pecking order and think about a brotherhood. And that has come as a result, to be honest, of doing this work, of really looking at brothers and seeing them as a reflection of me versus a reflection of what I am not. And the more I do that, the more I spend time really asking myself what makes me smile and assessing my joy and working to create environments and doing things and investing in that kind of radical reclamation of self, the less time I'm spending thinking about how someone else is a threat to who I am and um, or to my sense of security that, 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 that subconsciously it feels like it needs to be bolstered by being something that I'm not. We'll be right back with Carlton Mackey. Marking 400 years since enslaved Africans arrived in Jamestown, the film Black Boys seeks to illuminate the full spectrum of black male humanity in America through an intimate intergenerational conversation at the intersection of sports, education, and criminal justice. With executive producer Malcolm Jenkins and director Sonia Lohman, Black Boys elevates an urgent and timely conversation on identity, opportunity, and equity to reimagine success for Black males in America. This is a Never Whisper Justice film. We must prepare our Black boys with skills to survive and thrive. We must also change systems and institutions. They are often reduced to just being a body. You exist in a world where nobody sees you, but everybody sees you. And when they see you, your silhouette doesn't look like you, it's a monster. These young people don't need saviors, they need believers. We're back with Carlton Mackey, creator of Black Men Smile. As you emerge through your adulthood, it is about understanding and becoming your authentic self. In essence, what I, mm-hmm. that's the word that pops into mind. And I think that's a very important lesson to learn in life that no matter what room you are in, you show up as your authentic self. Mm-hmm. It really troubles me when I see young men who, you can almost see that processing going on it's in their happening. mind. Yes. And uh, I've been talking about this a lot. I live in Harlem and it is remains the essence of black culture, similar to Atlanta and uh, Philadelphia and 
Chicago. And I see these black men literally physically, you know, they're walking down the street Mm -hmm. and taking on a persona that I don't think that is typically how they move through life. But I think it's in large part because that's what they think they need to do to demonstrate their masculinity. It could be for fear Mm -hmm. of someone thinking that they're soft Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, And it makes me sad. By the same token, I do see young boys walking down the street and having moments of pure joy, Mm -hmm. of laughter, Mm -hmm. of smiling, of sharing, of um, compassion Mm -hmm. for one another. And I feel especially heartened that with scholars and leaders like yourself, Dr. Lindsay, Malcolm Jenkins, and others around the country and the world, quite frankly, that we can continue to have these conversations around this. In this sense of belonging, mm-hmm. what role have Black women played for you in terms of that? Oh, man. I um, I was raised by my, you know, I, I knew my father exceptionally well. He, he played as I just spoke, it was such an important part in my life. But um, uh, I was raised in the home of my grandmother. And I was raised alongside an older sister. And, you know, again, a lot of these are thoughts that I'm, that I'm able to understand now, but they've been in, they, they've, I've been being, I have been, I am in the process of becoming. I am always becoming. Um, and in that process, I'm, I'm able to understand the, comp- the components that have worked toward that becoming um, self. And I just realize now more than ever just the role that um, my sister and my grandma have played in my life. Um, uh, you know, I used to burn, make, make my dad so mad because, you know, he used to say, Boy, you didn't need all the food on your plate. You know, it's 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 squash, and you didn't need all your squash. And I say, I don't like squash. It's like, what do you mean you don't like squash? I was like, essentially, I didn't like squash because my sister didn't like squash. She said she didn't like. It. I didn't like banana pudding because she said she didn't like. It. And I just just I wanted to. I looked up to her, and you know, I still do in many ways. And she taught me how to tie my shoe, and. I never forget that. I remember I was sitting on my bed. I don't I don't know what how old I was and and I just could not do it. And she said, "Do it like this." And she showed me and I did it. And I was just like I looked at her like she was magic. I was like, "You taught me how to tie my shoe. Like I, this is something I'll do for the rest of my life." And my sister taught me how to do it. It's those moments, right? It's right. those it's not the big things. It's sometimes the small things that leave such an incredible impression on you. Absolutely. And she's a black woman. The person who taught me how to tie my shoe was a black woman. The person who um, who taught me how to save money. I, I am financially literate by being taught by a woman who is illiterate. My grandma can't read. She can read better now. I mean, she can sit, put together, she can read her Bible. She can string together some words in her Bible, but she taught me about saving, you know, um, she would go to, this is a woman who would go to the bank 
after she paid all of her bills and everything, she would go sometimes with $2.30 and put it in the bank. Because that too, that's what she had left. And she knew that you're supposed to set. You're supposed, whatever you can, you could supposed to tuck some away. And she just taught me stuff like that. And that's stuff that I still carry. And these are, these are the figures. These are the, the shapers of my becoming. And they were black women. And um, I'll tell you this. In Creating Black Men Smile, I don't tell people these numbers often, um, but... In Creating Black Men Smile, it started off and it is focused. It has a target demographic of black men. Um, you know, Unabashedly, right? Unabashedly. That's what we're doing. Celebrating the way we see ourselves as black men. You see, you know, we've made however many hundreds of posts and they're all black men, except for within the last three weeks. And I'm going to tell you two, two facts. We started doing more analytics, looking at... Uh, the way our social media has grown and, and by whom, and you know, these social media platforms give us more tools for analyzing our data. Um, 20% of the community of Black Men Smile was women, then 30, then 40. We have 28,000 followers now, and um, over 50% of them are women. And what that tells me, and in some other ways that I can tell you very specifically, is that the people who want to see us win as much as we do are the sisters who standing beside us and who've been rooting for us eat well before we... Before you even realized they Before we even realized they was rooting for us. And before we even really got on our, like, you know, we need to do therapy and we need to, you know, men can be all the black... I, They've been like, yo. That's why I've always said, you can't be your brother's keeper without being your sister's keeper. All day. And um, black women and girls play a pivotal role in the lives of black men and boys, whether it's from tying your shoes, mm-hmm. talking to you about finance and management. Mm-hmm helping you to understand what um, being charitable, being generous, being kind, being part of community, thinking more about yourself. And I'm, I, I could see why that a majority of the demographic for Black Men Smile is women, not for the reason that you think. Yeah, no, no. Okay, let me tell you, there's a, uh, this is another anecdote. I'm mean, just giving you, because we're talking about Black Men Smile, and I can give you, I can tell you all kinds of things, and our, our our platforms, which are larger than social media, but these are just these these make these are stories that are that fit well in the time constraints that we have, and little things, little nuggets I can give you. So, I started doing um, a series, a weekly series, about two months ago on Wednesdays, where because you know when we talk, I ask this question: What makes you smile? And brothers would tell, you know, give all kinds of answers. And sometimes it would it would be around important women in their lives. So I made this post that was still targeted at black men. I was like, brothers, tag a woman. Assume, you know, a lot of people like, you know, the women in our life make us smile. So I made the post and was like, tag a black woman who makes you smile. And they started tagging. And it was like, 
500 comments on this post where people were just tagging and sisters were tagging sisters. And it started this thing where I was like, wow, black women. So if I ask the question, what makes you smile? Essentially, if I were to reduce it to a phrase, you know, one of the answers is black women to make me smile. So I put that phrase on a shirt and just what well, just a mock-up of a shirt it just said, black women make me smile. And I posted it. And sisters were like, they loved it. No, that, that just says black men smile. Let's go for the one, just the post, two posts ago says, it's a brother wearing a shirt that says black women make me smile. I see it right see now. It. And, uh, and then I was like, well, man, I'm, I'm, I just looked at our analytics. We just officially, it's like over 50, it's like 49 and 51% women. I was like, I wonder if black women would say the same, that black men make them smile. So I did the same thing, made a little mock-up of a shirt and posted it and put them side by side and was like, you know, new in the shop for two weeks. I'm going to just test out this, testing testing the water, see what the market would have to say about this, because, you know, this new product that I'm introducing. <laughs> I sold out of them. And to the point about women supporting men and, and how important affirming that and establishing that I'm going to say this both proudly and like, come on, bros. Uh, black men make me smile shirts. Sell. I sell about eight of them for every one. Black women make me smile. Well, I'm going to buy one today. Sisters are, <laughs> I can't keep them. I cannot keep those shirts. This is the first product that I ever offered on Black Men Smile that was specifically, and this has only been within the last month, that was specifically catered. It was as if, I know women are supporting this page. Let me offer you something that's still within the motif, within the theme of kind of like our language and our messaging and brand, you know, trying to be a smart brand. And it has black women make me smile and black men make me smile. I cannot keep a black man make me smile shirt. Sisters are... They're committed to radically supporting us. I think for for within the community, certainly there's the perception for a whole lot of reasons that there are there's a big uh, separation between black men and women, a big gap, right? And what I like most about this, I would call it social campaign that you're doing is reminding us of what we know in, in our essence about one another. And I'm grateful for you doing that campaign. And I can talk to you. I, I, I'd love to talk to about this topic um, for a long time, but uh, our time is running out. Um, Want to talk to you to shift a little bit in what I talked about just a little bit earlier about Black Boys Film, which does talk about the the full experiences of of Black boys in this country. Um, but I also want to talk about what we see happening around mental health mm-hmm. and what I am most hopeful of is the number of people who are able to have courageous conversations to share some of the challenges that they have had as it relates to 
um, mental health. And I just would love to talk with you a little bit about have you or someone else faced some of these emotional challenges? And uh, if you're able, take us through what happened. Yeah, I uh, before I really had the language to understand what I was experiencing, I would have never used the word, but I now am keenly aware um, of the fact that uh, you know I experienced depression, and um, it's something that on some level of of just trauma as a as a black person, I think that on on some level we are always battling with some diagnosable something. To to be honest, but I was in a state, uh, and it manifested in a way that was classic textbook depression. Um, Not eating, sleeping in all day, um, losing weight, isolating myself, um, just all of these things. So so many ways in which you know for about. Longer than I'd like to admit. It was it was it was it was like a year, but it was severe for about um four to six months where I quarantined myself and just wallowed and spiraled and didn't know how to get out of it. Um and it was it was around what I understand now of uh, 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 it was around an identity peril where who I thought I was and how that person was supposed to show up and be and exist and succeed. Um, I considered myself a failure in that regard. And um, it was, it was, it was, it was a, I started off my career um, as a, as an engineer, I worked professionally in software and um, it was in, you know, 2000, between the 2000, 2000, two, three time period. And um, I worked for a company that essentially, you know, it was based in California. It went through a rise and a fall of the dot-com era and I had clients and I was flying. And um, ultimately the, the company lost, was bought out as so many companies was happening at the time. And I lost my position. And I, um, I just remembered thinking that this person, the first person in my family to go to college, this dude who was a success. You know, I was sending money home in ways that I'd never done before. I was in California. I'm from Georgia, went to school in Alabama, and I was living in California. The company moved me to Atlanta. I mean, I'm doing it. And, you know, I lost my job. And and I did not, I had not had a failure as I perceived it at, at this young age. I hadn't, I hadn't had one like that before. And everything that I thought that were supposed to be symbols of success, I no longer had. And I was just a regular dude who didn't have a job. Um, and I was Carlton Mackey. Like, I'm that dude. And I was just a regular dude. And, and it was compounded by thinking that being regular and how I defined regular was problematic. It was, it was again, I wasn't narrowing the distance between me and so many of my brothers and sisters I was I had created a wedge. Again, that whole pecking order, that whole can I make more money than you? Is my waves deeper than yours? Am I bigger than you? Can I do more push-ups? Do I have more girls than you? Can all these things, right? This was 
I was falling in the pecking order because I hadn't narrowed the distance between me and my brothers. I hadn't seen us as a brotherhood. I'd seen the, the things that divided us versus us as reflections of each other. And um, and it took it it took. I wish I knew how that that I was depressed, and I wish I knew that there were resources at the time of you know people to talk to, and that this I wasn't the first Negro in the world to lose a job and all. But I just didn't have that, so I spiraled for a very long time. And um, you know, fortunately, there were people around me who didn't really know what was going on, or didn't really know what to say. But they they let me know that Carlton was still Carlton, and he was still a valuable individual and still a person of um, a value, and had things to offer the world, even though his title or his position or you know um, had been quote unquote compromised. And um, that's just a tiny story among so many people who probably who have stories that are close to that or on a range of that, but but ultimately it 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 showed me um and it's showing me now that how much value we place in things other than um ourselves and how much we build our identity around these things. And it is um it is as an adult who has faced another crisis um, that I now sought therapy as a means of learning how to talk through these narratives that I that I told myself that allowed me to, you know, spiral into this really um, dark place. And I find that um, the impacts, the reality of being able to feel and be impacted by things that happen to us are still real. But I now have resources and tools and I don't have to sit in a place um, and essentially perish, um, that I can flourish in the midst of struggle. And that's, the, that's our narrative. Um, our, narrative is, our narrative isn't all struggle, but in the midst of the things that, that are struggles, we can still flourish. We can still claim, radically claim um, and love ourselves and love each other and not, and, and again, I keep going back to this other phrase, narrow the distance between ourselves and those things that we think um, separate us from our brothers and sisters. When we, when we do that, it creates spaces where intimacy can occur. Essentially, that is what intimacy is. It is narrowing the distance between the things that divide us, breaking down whatever walls, whatever gaps, and getting close enough to where you can smell the other person's breath. Getting close enough to where you can um, feel what makes them cry. Getting close enough to where when they laugh, you're like, oh, I know their sense of humor. You got to get close enough to where that can happen. And when you do that, you were able to find that like, yo, this, we all we got. And we can flourish in the midst of things that look like impossible hurdles. And we can laugh in the midst of uh, not even thinking about that. And, uh, yeah. Well, thank you, um, first for, for sharing, uh, that experience. I think being black, there's a lot to carry in America. Um, and I think for black men, it it can be hard. Um, also this, this idea of, you know, the imposter theory, Mm -hmm. I think no matter how successful you are, I think there's sometimes in the back of your head that that little thing, and I'm not suggesting that's what you went through, but oh, that's that, all good. That, that's all good. that understanding that 
people think it's like, all right, I grew up in Georgia, went to school in Alabama, now I'm in Cali, I'm taking mm-hmm. flights, and you know that your leadership trajectory is a straight line. Mm-hmm. Leadership, when you really go through it, as you know now that you've you went through that experience, and now. Here you have this incredible mm-hmm. organization in a totally in a totally different field. Exactly. I mean, what I, with the, the, my profession, my career, my um, my vocation, my calling probably has always been the same. But 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 I wouldn't have been able to get as close to it as I am now had certain other parts of me not been stripped away. I probably would have still been feeling comfortable in the comfort uh, that this other identity that I was holding on so closely to was offering me. Knowing that it wasn't, that the approximation of that thing that I was becoming, that I was longing to be. Um, but those are trappings. Yeah. The, as you as you grow, mm-hmm. as you do the work on yourself, you understand those are trappings, mm-hmm. right? You know a lot, we know a lot of brothers and sisters that have the car, the job, mm-hmm. the house, and they're not happy. Mm-hmm. They're going through a lot. They may be feeling loneliness, all of these things. But when you do the work on yourself, when to me, I think talking to a therapist is the the healthiest thing that you can do personally because it's somewhat objective. It gives you the tools. And so the way I'd like to 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 close out with you, we could go on for hmm. hours. Unfortunately, we don't have that time, is I would love to hear from you for anyone listening to this podcast who may be going through exactly what you just described in terms of depression, anxiety. Um, what would you say to them? Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's simple. Um, I think that the, the message is, is simply that you are enough. Um, that who you are um, is enough and that what you seek aren't to, 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 to gain your value aren't the things outside of you. Um, if you can tap into that part of you and really love yourself through the struggle, you will find um, just a world of value and you will find resources and you will find <clears throat> so many ways out of your, out of your loving yourself that you can show up and be in the world in ways that will, that will attract, um, that will attract you to yourself. I think that the things that, that we are seeking are also seeking us. And Whenever we are able to understand our value and realize that we are enough in and of ourselves and we live from that point, that those things that, that, that we think that we're longing for and that are so far in the distance, they will, they will come closer to us. And when they're in our possession, we can be our full authentic selves. And that is the greatest gift we can be, that we can give the world. I want to thank you, Carlton Mackey. An incredible conversation. A great way to close out this um series of changing the narrative. Uh, thank you so much. I'm going to get my t-shirt. Mm-hmm. I'm going to order it uh, as soon as we're finished, but thank you so much uh, you. for your words and for the powerful work that you're doing with Black Men Smile. Thank you so much. 
You've been listening to another episode of Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative, which is produced by the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University. McSilver is committed to creating new knowledge about the root causes of poverty, developing evidence-based interventions to address its consequences, and rapidly translating research findings into action through policy and best practices. Learn more about the McSilver Institute at mcsilver.nyu.edu or on social media at NYU McSilver. Many thanks to Never Whisper Justice for their work on the second season of Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative. Listeners can find the latest episodes of the podcast series on multiple platforms, including Google Play Music, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. I'm Rose Pierre-Louis. Thank you for listening.